0: Well, welcome again to Grace Bible Church uh, I've, this morning I'm preaching a sermon I've titled uh, why you need to be a member why you need to be a member uh, specifically a member of a local church I'm going to give some arguments starting this morning uh, we this is going to be as Jonathan explained a part of a, a series on, on the church this summer uh, that I'm going to preach. Uh, and there's also some other guys that are going to come alongside. Jonathan started last week with a wonderful sermon on unity. Uh, I was blessed listening to that sermon as I drove back from Tampa. Thankful that Jonathan was able to uh, study and put that together. And and I pray that it will have the fruit that he intends it and that God ultimately intends it to have. Um, this, uh, this series that I'm preaching, I'm going to start today on membership. Uh, we're also going to look at baptism and communion, and church discipline. And what I think you'll find is, is those uh, four topics come together. Those four topics we'll see uh, form. uh, You have to have all four of them in order for this all to work, according to God's Word. But today we're going to focus specifically on church membership. Let me start with emphasizing the importance of church membership by doing something I don't usually do. I'm going to quote someone else to start the sermon. Says this is Mark Dever. Mark Dever says this: I am convinced that getting the biblical concept of membership rights is a key step in revitalizing our churches, evangelizing our nation, and furthering the cause of Christ around the world, and so bringing glory to God. End quote. I believe that I hope that at the end of today's sermon and at the end of this series that you will come to understand why Mark Dever would say that, and you would come to agree with him. If you do not, as of now, so let's dive right in. Several months ago, Pastor Wang Yi was arrested along with his wife and more than 100 Christians. He pastored a church called Early Rain Covenant Church in China. Pastor Wang and and members of his congregation were charged by the state with inciting subversion of state power. Chinese authorities often charge Chinese Christians because the Communist Party views religion, especially Christianity, as a threat to their ideological control. Some of the church leaders and members who were arrested were released quickly while others have spent months in detention. As a matter of fact, the authorities just released Pastor Wang's wife after almost six months, which is the longest period they can lawfully hold a citizen without bringing formal charges. And the reason they held her so long is because she led women's Bible studies. And so she was seen as, by the state as being a leader in the church. Pastor Wang himself and four others actually remain in custody to this day as far as I know. It seems that he had long anticipated that they would arrest him over this question of state control. Prior to his detention, he preached a sermon in in which he asked if the government were to demand even limited control over the church, what should he do? Should he agree and avoid persecution or should he resist and and risk persecution? He joked that some people might ask him that they could, he could make you know, a few compromises, like, you know, we've got an 80-year-old grandma at home we're taking care of, and we just had a child, so why would you, you know, resist the church or the, the state? But Mr. Wang argued against this sort of accommodation, saying this. In this world, in this crooked and depraved and perverse world, how do we demonstrate that we are a group of people who trust Jesus? It is through bodily submission, through bodily suffering, that we demonstrate the freedom of our souls. End quote. You see, he saw that to resist was the right thing to do because suffering for Christ's sake would demonstrate true freedom in Christ. Now, while this particular story garnered media attention, it's hardly the only example of, of state-sponsored persecution. Uh, pastor Jesse Johnson posted a story that some of you may have seen this past week on the Cripplegate blog about a pastor who had served 17 years in a closed country in Asia. Now, I, I think it might be China as well, but I'm not quite sure. He's been a faithful pastor, this man, for, whose churches have consistently grown. He's trained up elders. He's even helped to start a network of, of churches, and he's trained pastors, and he's helped to refine their doctrine. Now, according to Johnson, a few weeks ago, Joe, just as he was beginning his sermon, the police raided his church. One of the elders talked them into waiting until after the end of the sermon, but after it was over which, by the way, he preached on Jesus' entrance, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is pretty cool. But after the sermon was over, according to Johnson, the police photographed each person, and thanks to facial recognition software, the government now knows who they are. Now, I don't know if you know it, but in China... In China they have what's called a social credit score that they have developed so that when they you get into the system they, they, they can do facial recognition and they begin to build a you begin to build a social credit score and if you don't have the, a high enough social credit score then you have a difficult time doing things in their society. It's similar to our credit, financial credit. If we if we don't have a good credit score, we don't are not able to get credit. It's a similar concept, but it encompasses the entirety of your life. So these people were arrested, and now they have they have been negatively impacted in their ability to live in that culture. Now, remarkably, after the the, the raid, the congregation had a or has developed a renewed confidence in their faith. There were even some new believers in the gathering, and they realized that they had had the desire. They were a supernatural desire to stand for Christ in the the midst of or in the face of suffering, persecution. They identified with Him and with His church as they faced this suffering, and they were found to be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Now you might be asking yourself why I would tell these stories on a sermon about membership. I will let Jesse Johnson, who wrote this blog, connect the dots for us. For context, he wrote this blog on July 4th, which is the American Independence Day, as you know. He says this, I can't help but wonder how many people in American congregations would still be in church if their presence there risked their personal freedom. As you celebrate your freedom this year, let, take time to pray and ask God to give you the kind of faith that would be emboldened in persecution rather than embittered. Now I think if I were able to talk to Jesse today, I think we already know the answer to his question. I think we already know. All we need to do is look at the state of commitment in the typical American evangelical church to see how many people in these churches would fall away if persecution comes. If we're barely committed today, which I think you'll see as we go through some of these numbers, then what do you think is going to happen to many of these people when the state comes and says, you can't, you can't worship this way. You can't worship Christ. You have to submit to the state? It's not so far-fetched, is it? Not so far-fetched. Let me give you a few few numbers regarding church membership, which I believe will show us the state of the American church. In 2018, the Southern Baptist Convention, which I believe typifies the typical or current evangelical movement, meaning this is the typical church or group of churches that we would say is the evangelical movement or represents the evangelical movement, they reported 14.8 million members in their churches. 14.8. Of those, an average weekly worship attendance is 5.3 million. Now, those of you who do math quickly would probably understand that's about one-third. A little more than one, about north of one-third of those who are members of Southern Baptist churches actually attend on Sunday morning. So that means two-thirds who call themselves members of the Southern Baptist churches do not attend church. Even if you adjust for normal absentee rates due to sickness, travel, military service, or other legitimate reasons, you would be hard-pressed to justify anywhere near that many people not showing up to church on a Sunday morning. Listen to Al Mohler, who is himself a Southern Baptist. Put bluntly, the total membership m- numbers, as compared to attendance, calls calls into question whether we really believe in regenerate church membership. Members who do not act like members should not be counted as members. "End quote." You get the point. See, Moeller is rightly concerned that the Southern Baptist n- membership numbers do not represent people who are truly rep- or truly regenerate. In other words, they are not committed. To Christ, much less his church. They're not committed to Christ, much less his church. Now you might be asking, well, what about overall membership numbers? Well, beloved, that picture looks even more bleak. According to Gallup, according to Gallup, US church membership was 70% or higher from 1937 to 1976 and it fell modestly to an average of 68% in the 1970s through the 1990s. For the past 20 years, we have seen an acceleration in the drop-off with a 20 percentage point decline since 1999 and more than half of that change occurring since the start of the last decade. A A precipitous drop in overall church membership. Beloved, this generation of Americans is not committed to church membership. They're not committed to church attendance at anywhere near the level we've seen in the past. Now, that could be good or bad. That could be good or bad because it could be that the people who are actually going or are, are actually attending are actually regenerate and want to be there and want to worship Christ. But I can tell you there's some alarming p- parts of that for sure. Our young people are falling away at alarming rates. They don't care for the church. They don't love the church. And even among those who are who identify with Christianity, like we talk about the Southern Baptist, most are choosing to do something else besides attend church on a Sunday morning. And we haven't even discussed committing to something outside of the simple gathering, outside of the 10:30 to a, to noon gathering. You see most most people consider themselves highly committed even if they arrive somewhere near the start time and stay a couple minutes after. They, they would consider themselves to be highly committed. But we're not even talking about that. We're talking about even going further and saying, okay, what about people who are committed to go to Sunday school? Well, the same Southern Baptist Convention poll says that just 22% attend Sunday school or a Bible study or a small group which is affiliated to the church they attend. 22% of those who identify as Southern Baptist members. Brothers and sisters, the commitment level in American churches is tragically low. And I believe many more would fall away if they faced the persecution our brethren is currently facing in other places. Persecution will reveal our lack of commitment. But it will also strengthen those who stay, right? It purify the church. Now I hope you're asking as I go through this, what does it look like? What, what should I, what should I, how should I be committed to the church? What does it look like biblically to be committed to the church? Well, that's the question I intend to answer in this sermon series. More specifically, I'm going to argue that when God saves you, He places you into the body of Christ, the church, and He expects you to publicly identify His people. He expects you to actually attend and actually publicly identify as being a Christian, as being part of the fellowship of Christians, specifically in a local church. Now, beloved, you do this through baptism. You do this also through a public commitment to a local church, membership. Thirdly, you do this through communion. And fourth, through church discipline. Now, let me me say this first. First, baptism. When a person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, they are commanded to be baptized. In Acts 2:36, after preaching an incredibly powerful sermon on the Day of Pentecost, the people were pierced to the hearts when they heard it. And Peter said to the, to the Peter and the, they said to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, "What shall we do?" In Acts 2:38, this is what Peter said. Peter says, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." Notice, they were pierced to the heart. When they heard the word of God, they were pierced to the heart. And the reason is, according to Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And these people heard the word of God, and they were undone. They were undone. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Messiah and that you sent him to the cross. But then he says this, be baptized, be baptized. Baptism then, we'll study this in a few weeks, but baptism is a public, Proclamation that you identify with the name of Christ. It's a public proclamation that you identify with the name of Christ. Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter wanted them to be clearly defined or marked out as Christ followers. This is a public proclamation of your faith. Baptism. And it follows Jesus' commands in Matthew 28, "Go therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit." Secondly, secondly, you make a public commitment to join with God's people. Beloved, this is implicit in the New Testament, in all of the New Testament. When you become a Christian, you, you now identify with God's people, you have been made a part of the body of Christ. I'm currently listening to an autobiography by a well known Christian. In the book, he describes his first few years of becoming a Christian, how Christ saved him out of a life of drugs, sex, and alcohol. So when he was saved, he brought a ton of baggage into his walk, as you might imagine. Now, immediately after he became a Christian, he began to, he, he was on fire for a while, but then he began to live two lives. I'm sure some of you can identify. On the one hand, he was the good Christian man who was attending conferences and going on mission trips. He was, as you might say, on fire for the Lord. Yet he hid his commitment in Christ when he hung out with his partying friends. So so he was going to mission he was doing mission uh, trips. He was going to conferences. He looked like he was the, the great guy in front of everybody. that were Christians. But as soon as that was over, he would go hide in the darkness and he would party with his friends. He hid his commitment. He didn't want them to see it. And because of his, he knew he was wrong, but, but because of his duplicity, because of his double-mindedness, he fell even further into sin and almost fell away from God's grace, God. Uh, continue to to strive with him and he and he was able to through God's power be able to defeat this but but he had become the double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways see brethren you can't be friends with the world and and be friends with God at the same time James says the same thing do not be do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. The point is, beloved, Jesus wants all of you. Not, I mean, He wants all of you, but He wants the whole person. He wants your whole person. He doesn't want you to give part of who you are. You can't be duplicitous. You can't be double-minded. James says that God yearns jealously over the spirit that He has made to dwell in us. In other words, He jealously desires for your whole being. He wants you to be committed to Him not only privately in your most intimate, in the most intimate part of your heart. He wants you to be committed to Him publicly as well. He wants every part of your life, Brother, beloved. I, I'm convinced that. James wrote his letter addressing so-called Christians who had not fully committed to Christ and to his church. They were avoiding the stigma of association with Christ in hopes of remaining friends with the world. But, beloved, that is incredibly dangerous business. Now, you might be saying, I can be fully committed to Christ without identifying with a bunch of folks that I don't like very much. You know, the church. Well, that's what I hope to answer in the next few sermons. The third part of a publicly identifying with Christ and His people is the regular observance of the Lord's table. When we observe communion, we take the time to confess sin, and we are commanded to confess our sins to God. But we are also commanded to make our relationships right before we partake. In His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Christ commanded His disciples that if they have issues with their brother, they are to leave the altar and go to one another and be reconciled. So when we, when we, when we observe the Lord's table, then we're forced, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we're forced to make sure that our relationships with each other is right before we partake before the Lord. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You can't have love for one another if you have enmity between the two of you. And so when we regularly partake in communion, we have to deal with that enmity. We can't let it sit. Or we should, anyway. Also, according to Paul, in communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes when we partake of communion. This is a public proclamation of our Lord's work on the cross. We publicly identify with His death. We publicly identify with a crucified Messiah. And beloved, that may not seem like a big deal to you right here, but that is a huge issue if you're, if you're in a position of being, being in a position of where it's forbidden that you do so. And that's what's going on in the New Testament. And that's what's going on in many countries that that are here today, that, that we are not a part of, as such, as such as China. Fourth, we publicly identify with Christ and with His people by submission to church discipline. By submission to church discipline. We publicly acknowledge the authority of Christ through His body to hold us accountable to live according to Christ's commands. Now, there will be much more that we'll say about each of these four elements of public identif- identification with Christ in this church, as I said earlier, we we're going to start with local church membership, which I'm defining simply as a public commitment to a local church. Now, you you might ask, why am I starting with church discipline or church membership? That is, well, I believe that church membership is the thread that holds all these together. You see, the local church. Administers baptism and communion. These are two explicit commands from our Lord. The local church has been given the authority to lovingly discipline its erring members. So so we we've been given the authority to discipline members, the church that is. We've been given the command to administer baptism and communion. So therefore, in order to be to be a part of those, you need to be a member of the church you need to be publicly committed to the church so let's start by looking at church membership now I said earlier that church membership is an implicit teaching in the New Testament really really you can't miss it but if you're looking for the words church membership you won't find them but I promise you the idea is there so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you four arguments for becoming a member of the local church now I've, as you know, I've spent a lot of time as as an introduction here, so I, I think we're only going to get to two of these today. We're, gonna, we're gonna, but we're going to see four arguments for becoming a member of the local church. They are. There 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 are that is there are irreproachable bases that's basis plural, there are iniquitous barriers, there are innumerable benefits, and there are incredible burdens. Let's look at the first argument. There are irreproachable bases. Beloved, our bases bases for church membership is found in the Scriptures. As I said, it's an implicit teaching in the the New Testament. But here's, here's what's interesting about implicit teachings. You must be willing to see it. You must be humble enough to see it. I, I grant to you that many well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ who do not believe there are many well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ. That is, that do not believe that the Bible teaches church membership. I grant to you that. But I believe that because of that is because of some of the factors that we're going to talk about in, in, a, in a moment. But first, I want to take you what I through what I believe to be a biblical basis for membership. Now, let me give you the di- diction. It is the fact, the fact of being a member, of a member. I like that definition because I believe it captures one of our major truths that we'll see in a moment. Let me let me give you the definition of a member. A member is a person belonging to a particular group, but it's also a constituent constituent piece of a complex structure, or a part or organ of the body, especially a limb. Now. If you study the New Testament, you're going to find, we've already used the metaphor, that we are the body of Christ. And according to Paul, in Ephesians 5.30, he uses the Greek word for a body part to signify that we are members, that each individual one of you are members of the body of Christ. Now, remember that membership is defined as the fact of being a member of a group. So... All true Christians, then, all true Christians are made members of the big C church at salvation. You are made a member of, there's there's no choice in the matter. You are made a member of the big C church, the universal church. Now, the question, though, I don't think, that's pretty irrefutable in my mind. The question, though, is, Do you need to belong to a particular group, the local church? Do you need to belong to a particular group, the local church? Now, in the past, we've studied the church at length and have found that the local church is a manifestation of the universal church, a physical manifestation of the local church. Now, I believe this is most clearly demonstrated in Revelation Revelation 2 and 3, where Christ sends a personalized letter to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, as as such, each of those local churches, you can look at it yourself, you can read Revelation 2 and 3, and you can see these personalized letters to the churches. And as such, then, each of these local churches in a specific, were in a specific location and they existed at a specific time. Therefore, therefore, if you look at that, it follows then that each of those churches were a local manifestation of the whole. Local manifestation of the whole, meaning that they were no less the church than the church itself, than the universal church. They were the church. Now let me say again that I've defined church membership as a public commitment or identification with a local church. Now I believe as I've said said before it is irrefutable that at salvation we are made, made members of the universal church. But does it follow that we're expected to commit to a local church? And I believe it does. I believe it does. Turn to The book of Acts, chapter two. We saw earlier that after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he called them to repent and be baptized in the name of Christ. And in two forty-one, records this. So then those who had received baptized and that day were added about 3,000 souls. Now clearly, if you read this, there is some accounting for these people because they knew the number of people that were added to the church on that day. Now we have other, I think Acts 4.4 has a similar statement, but I don't think that that's the strongest argument for church membership. Look at Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking bread, and to prayer. Said another one another. They were committed to koinonia, the Greek word for that, that means a close association, a communion, a fellowship, a close relationship. They were to spend time with one another in close fellowship. I, what I want you to get out of this is that this was a way of life for these early believers. Now clearly, clearly this was a special time in the life of the church. It had just been birthed. Just look at in Acts two forty three. Luke gives a description of the church in those early days. He says this: Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together in common, and they began selling property and possessions, and were sharing with them or withal as anyone might have need. Now let me be clear. As a special time in the church, not repeated, these, these people had turned to Christ and had given up their, their way of life. Said another way, let's, let's think about this, they identified publicly with a crucified Messiah. It's wrong thing to do in a Jewish context. That's not, that wasn't too popular. And therefore, there was great need in the church. And they they were willing then to give up their earthly possessions to help those in need. But I believe that this is instructive of the type of public commitment that we are to have with one another. You see, whether they had need or whether they were helping those in need, these men and women were walking in faith toward God and they had publicly proclaimed their commitment to Christ and His people. They had no other choice. There was no gray area. There was no middle ground that you could be in where you could still love the world and, and love his time or love His church. Look at the text, 246. Day by day, continuing temple and breaking bread from house to house they were taking their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day to day those who were being saved you see this commitment beloved meant something these people had clearly committed to the body of Christ now you might ask you might ask how far this commitment extended well, we have this story in Acts 4, if you turn over there, 4.32, it says, And the congregation of those who were of one heart and soul, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, that is, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And it says in 436, a Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, he owned a tract of land and he sold it. And he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. But the, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for, for himself. And with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Peter challenges this. Peter says, why have you lied to, to the Holy Spirit? happened to Ananias. He, he was dropped dead, he was killed, right? And great fear, according to 5.5, great fear came over those who heard it. and, and uh, the young men got up five, six and covered him up. I mean they buried him right there after, or they buried him right there. And I, then his wife came in, same thing. same thing. immediately she fell at his at Peter's feet and breathed her last. And they they carried her out. Five eleven, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem, and all the more, and all the more, all all the more believers in the Lord. Multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number. Beloved, here we have a miraculous demonstration of church discipline. These two lied to the Holy Spirit and they were struck dead. Obviously, as you read this passage, these things were well known among the people. The story, let me put it another way, the story must have spread like wildfire. But I want to draw your attention to 5.13. It says this, but none of the rest dared to associate. If you weren't a Christian, then you didn't want to be associated with them because God might strike you dead. You see, beloved, beloved, there was a clear delineation between those who were in the church and those who were on the outside. Clear line of demarcation. And there was good reason for this. Association meant... You were giving your life to the, to the cause of Christ, and later when persecution come, it could, could have meant giving your entire life, giving your actual life to Christ, dying for His cause. But it also, meant, it also meant that you were committing yourself to be accountable. I mean, these two were ultimately accountable. They were ultimately accountable to, to the Holy Spirit. In other words, membership with this group meant something. Membership meant something. Beloved, the rest of the New Testament bears out this truth as the church grows to maturity. The book of Acts follows the Apostle Paul and his team of missionaries as they plant local churches throughout the known world. In Matthew 16, Christ promised to build His church and the gates of Hades would not overpower it. In other words, the forces of darkness would not stop its growth. But in that same passage in Matthew 16, 19, it says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You see, he gave the apostles the authority of heaven as they ruled over the church. In Matthew 18, Jesus lays out the process of church discipline, and in doing so, He gave the church the authority to discipline its members. In 1815, it says this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, and so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And He goes on, and He says, Tell it to the church if they ultimately refuse to listen. If they refuse to even listen to the church, let them be like a gentile or a tax collector. Ultimately, let them be outside the church. See you know the point? They they need to be, they they need to submit themselves to the church, but if they fail to repent, let them be outside the church. They're no longer a part of us. And he says this in Matthew 18 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I ask, I say to you that if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Study church discipline in a future. This That you can't have biblical church discipline without having a well-defined membership. Without knowing to first Corinthians five nine quickly. He says that Paul says this says I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetousness covetous that is and swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have gone have to go out of the world but actually i wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one now this is a setup for the next two verses which i believe form Paul's overarching point. Look at the text. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Beloved, here's the point. There has to be a clear line of delineation which marks out those who have publicly and those who are on the outside there you you have to and the only who know who's in and who's out are publicly committed to being in the church it's delineation beloved throughout the new testament People were forced in the New Testament, people were forced to commit to the local church or renounce their faith. It was, it was, there was, again, there was no middle ground. You had to, you had to commit or be out. Now, you may be protesting with me right now. Does this really mean that I have to be a church member? Does this mean that I have to be a a member of a local church if I'm a Christian? Let's look at point number two. There are iniquitous barriers. Now, let me give you a few barriers to joining a church. Let me give you a few barriers. individualism. Legalistic authoritarianism. And thirdly, commitment. Three big ones. I didn't make those up my study this found. First, let's briefly look at lawless individualism. Beloved, we are Americans. We live in a free nation. We are immediately suspicious of anything that threatens our freedom. Most of us in this room have sung the Star Spangled Banner from before most of us can remember. You know the words, oh, does that Star Spangled Banner yet wave? For the land of the what, the free, right, the home of the brave. See, we celebrate our freedoms every day. Claims, this, truths <coughs> to be, evident that is, that all men are equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with what, certain, unalienable rights, that among these are what. Life, liberty, and happiness. You see, we as Americans celebrate those words because they have power. And we fight for those freedoms. When we, Angie and I lived in Nevada for 10 years, the state motto was battle born. That might be Nevada's motto, but as Americans, we believe it. We will fight. But, beloved, while individual freedoms in a country, in our country, may be important, we have applied these things in our lives in some very unhelpful ways as Christians. We celebrate it. We celebrate I'm the kind of guy, that, you know, I've I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I don't need any help in this life. I don't need any help from you. As Christians, we have. It's made worse because we have thousands of resources. Church. All we have to do is listen to the radio or or get on the Internet. We have plenty of teaching. We listen to the celebrity pastor of our choice. That's all we need. But as Christians, we must recognize that God did not design us in this way. He did not design us to be an independent people. He designed us to be a community. You do need, beloved, let me say this slowly. You do need other Christians to grow and mature in Christ. You will not grow in maturity if you are alone. Last week, Jonathan preached a much-needed sermon out of Ephesians 4. As as you learn, Paul calls for the church, called for the church in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they had been called. They had been called and they had been made part of the body, the the body of Christ, the church. What does Paul say? What does it look like to, to walk in a manner worthy? Is it walk by yourself? Grow by yourself? No, he doesn't say that at all. He says this with all humility and gentleness, with patience, love, being diligent. Also, you were called in one hope your calling, and I could keep going. But the point is, is that that he calls us in the context of the church. In other words, he exhorts them in unity. We can't dwell together in unity if we don't exist together. And we're finite beings. We, we exist in a place. We exist in time. We can't transcend that. Therefore we have to be together as a local church to follow that command. We are to pursue spirit we are to use our you see there's no room for rugged individualism in there's no room for us and, and being individual we have to we have to submit ourselves to the authority of the local church which brings us to our second barrier to church membership legalistic authoritarianism Legalistic authoritarianism. Everybody, everyone here. Is what this is non-essential doctrine becomes essential. This is fundamentalism on steroids. I as a kid. I used to love to spend time with my mama and papa. They lived in this little house in Oklahoma. Uh, I used to go there, and and they had. They lived. It was actually a creek. They lived above the creek, and you could look overlook into the creek and. It was uh, called Rock Creek, and for a good reason, because it's full of rocks, and it's a beautiful place. We go fishing. I, I really love to be there. But as I got older, I noticed some odd things about my grandparents. My grandmother always wore dresses. Never wore her hair down in public. She frowned upon the kids going to movies, and and I don't think she even allowed playing cards in her house. She had those convictions. She wouldn't. She wouldn't allow the girls to wear shorts, any shorts. Beloved, it's easy to have your own convictions in these areas. Some of you have convictions that I have and, and vice versa. are not clear commands of Scripture. And it's even an even greater issue when leadership uses their authority in ways that are legalistic. You see, when ungodly men lead the church in ungodly ways, there's great danger and potential for hurt. So, beloved, this is truly a potential barrier to church leadership. Yet, yet, God does not give us this out. You won't find this out. In, in the scriptures, we are still called to join with the body of Christ. If anything, this danger should cause us to be very discerning as we potential churches. But it also should be a signal for us that we must learn never to go beyond the clear commands of Scripture, and as we, especially as we apply them to those around us. Again, those commands that are clearly addressed and spelled out in Scripture. But there are areas in our lives, in the Christian walk, that are not so clear. In Romans 4, 12, writes of this subject, he says this, 14.1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. But then he says this in 14.3, This is powerful. Not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not. In other words, in the areas of life where we have no clear direction, we need to reserve our judgment of one another. So while this is a potential barrier to joining yourself to a church, and it is a danger, I want to, I want to be clear about this. Our Lord clearly addresses it in His Word. He clearly addresses it in His Word. Beloved, you will find no perfect churches. Charles Spurgeon says this, The day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join it. End quote. But he might allow this as an excuse for not joining the local church. Excuse. Third barrier is commitment phobia. Mark Dever says this commitment phobia is the fear that in promising something good we will in promising something good we will miss out on getting something even better. So although we see many good things we could be doing, we would rather just keep our options open. And we're seeing this in all aspects of American life. This phenomenon is incredibly prevalent among our young people. Young people are waiting longer and longer to leave their parents' homes and commit to marriage. Many times it's because they don't want to take the plunge and make a lifelong commitment. Understandable, because it's a big But we can't live in a paralyzed state trying to decide. We can't live on the fringes of things. We have to commit. We have to dive in. We're moving out if we don't. Some of you, I'm going to get a little personal, some of you are on the fringes. You may see this church as a good place to come for good teaching, and I I hope that's true. I work hard. Keep coming. But you must understand that when you don't commit, fully commit, you're missing out on the fullness of all the church has to offer. Just listen to Mark Dever. This is our sense of ownership of the work of the church, of its community, of its budget, of its goals. We move from being pampered consumers to becoming joyous proprietors. We stop arriving late and complaining that we don't get exactly what we we want instead we arrive early and try to help others with what they you see the difference you see the difference beloved some of you come but you're not fully committed in your heart virgin i know that there are some who may say well i've given myself to the lord But I do not intend to give myself to any church. Why not? Now, why not? This is what he says. Because I can be a a Christian without it. Clear about that? You can can be as good a Christian by disobedience. I may have mistyped this. You can't be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as be, by being obedient. What is it made for? Build a house. It is no, of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in a house. It is a good-for-nothing brick. So you Rolling Stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. End quote. I butchered that, but the point is that you can't be. A You're meant to be a house. You can't. You you have to join the local. Your purpose in Christ. Let me close with this. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock the Spirit has made you over to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Beloved Christ has purchased this church with His very own blood. He purchased the Big C Church, but I believe this church He purchased as well. And you may say, He didn't purchase this church. Look at us. That Christ paid for? Oh, really? Oh, really? I challenge you. I challenge you. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? What about your brother or sister sitting next to you? Are they Christians? Are you gathering in his name? You see, Jesus promised in Matthew 18, for where two Or three have gathered to gather in my name. I am there in their midst. Now, I know that that verse has been abused. But I believe in context, he's saying, I am there when you gather. When you gather as a church, when you gather as a local church, when you commit to a local church, I am there with you. Earlier, I mentioned the churches in Revelation. Many of them had some very wicked people in them. But Christ addressed them all as this. They were no less the church. They were no less the church. You see, Christ is committed to his church. He gave his own blood for her. You say that Christ, I hope you say, you say that Christ is everything to you. He's everything to you. But is he? But is he? Have you publicly and privately committed to the people that He died for, His church? If you're an unbeliever here today, I want you to know that we preach a crucified Savior. He died for your sins if only if you believe in Him. I beg you to repent and be baptized in His name. Identify with him. Join his church. Jesus himself said, If anyone wishes to follow him, let him take up his cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow him. If you're a believer, take up your cross and follow him. Be willing to suffer for him. Be willing to suffer persecution. If the police walk through the door today, be willing to stand in your faith in Christ committed to His church, committed to His people. And in doing so, beloved, you will find life eternal. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You that we can be as Your people. that you are here in our midst. We see in Revelation 1 you walking among the lampstands, lampstands of the church. We trust that you are walking amongst us even here today. Father, I pray that our people would truly commit to you by committing to the church, the local church, this church, if this is where they're called. Father, I pray that we would be honoring to you, that we know that we exist to bring you glory and glory and you glory alone. We pray that we would do so as your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.